Well, friends, this morning, what would you say is humanity's greatest need? Humanity's greatest need. Well, as I've researched that question some and thought about it, renowned physicist and atheist Stephen Hawking would say that greatest need that humanity faces is education. It's education. Only education, he says, can deliver us from the myths and from the superstitions of the past and deliver us toward a more glorious future. But if you were paying attention to the campaign trail this past year, and it was hard not to be alerted regularly of that, Bernie Sanders, well, much of his campaign was on wealth inequality. And regardless of what you may think of his tax policies, economists seem to agree that wealth inequality between the rich and the poor has risen to levels we haven't seen in 100 years. And so maybe you would agree and think, well, it's wealth equality would be a greatest need. And yet Al Gore would say, hey, listen, you can talk all you want about wealth equality, but if you don't have a land to enjoy that equality on, it's all a moot point. And so he spent the last decade or so of his life talking about global warming, having an earth that is habitable for us. All right, but if you look at churches, maybe we look there. What's the greatest need? Churches, parachurch ministries, you might conclude, given some of their ministries, that the greatest needs before humanity are poverty or clean water, or sex trafficking, or genocide, or racial reconciliation, or marriage, or adoption. For the start of this century, it seems that Christians have sort of woken up to many of the social ills that have plagued uh, the uh, communities and societies they live in, and that's been largely a good thing. It's been a good development. right? But what do you think, of all those, what would you say is humanity's greatest need? Humanity's greatest need. If you had to just pick one. Well, to help us answer this question, I want us, again this morning, to turn in our Bibles to the book of Galatians, to the book of Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 2, and if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seat back before, you can find it on page 973, on page 973. And as you turn there, uh, if you're visiting with us and you're new, just a a reminder, I guess just really bring you up to speed, that we started this series in Galatians last week. It's really going to continue through um, into the next year. And it's likely Paul's first letter, perhaps the first letter written in the New Testament. And maybe more than any other book, it really focuses on the central message to Christianity, what Christians call the gospel or the good news. And as we saw in those opening chapters, this letter is full of thunder, right? As Paul writes, he is exercised in this letter. He dispenses with all the customary niceties, right? He kicks down the door in chapter one, and he starts pronouncing curses upon these Galatian Christians. Why? Well, because these Christians, these young Christians in churches spread across modern-day Turkey and Syria, they're in danger of abandoning the very good news that they had just embraced a few years earlier. For it seems some have arrived in Jerusalem, and they're calling these Gentile, right, these non-Jewish believers, calling them to be, to be circumcised and to follow the Old Testament ceremonial laws and the like. And so great is their influence over these churches that it seems even Peter and Barnabas yield to their demands. And so we we saw last week that the central issue in the book is does one really need to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? 
In some respects, that's how you can sort of summarize the central question of the book. Does one need to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? In other words, must Moses complete what Jesus left incomplete? And at the very thought of this, Paul loses it. So if an apostle can throw a hissy fit, like that's the book of Galatians. He loses it in this book. He is exercised for them. Paul says, no way. Are you kidding me? The way forward in Christ is not to go back to the law. That will only lead you into slavery. Christianity, it's not Jesus plus anything. Not Jesus plus circumcision. Not Jesus plus what you eat or what you drink or what you wear. Not Jesus plus period. It's not a potluck where we all come and need to contribute a dish. That's not how Christianity works, Paul says. Christ provided the meal. He invites us to the table, empty, hungry, disheveled, and all. He provides the feast. We receive it and accept it. And in a nutshell, we said the summary of Paul's argument throughout the whole book of Galatians is this. The good news of the gospel. It's not what God requires of us, but it's what Christ has accomplished for us. That's The book, in a sentence, the good news of the gospel is not what God God requires of us, but what Christ accomplished for us. And in the first two chapters and 14 verses, last week, Paul defends that gospel. He defends that gospel from the charge that it was derived from men, that he got it from men and not from God. He defends it against the the charge that he then distorted it. Right, that he softened the edges, tried to make it more sort of palatable for people so they would receive it and and want to believe it so he could please men and win converts. And as we get to our text this morning, chapter two, verses 15 to 21, we find Paul's defense of all that apostolic authority, all that autobiographical information we got last week. It's really leading up, it's building up to this point, this question where he lays out humanity's greatest need. So what is it? Well, let's read Galatians 2, 15 through 21. And if you're new to a Bible, just know that when I say Galatians 2, 2, that bold number is the chapter number, and uh, verse is those little superscript numbers there in the text. So Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves, Paul's writing here, thinking of Peter still sort of addressing Peter from the issue that was in the preceding verses. We ourselves, Paul Peter, were Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. All right, so what's humanity's greatest need? We have Paul's answer right here in these verses. Humanity's greatest need is reconciliation, which is why God provided justification. That's these verses in summary. Humanity's greatest need is reconciliation, which is why God provides justification. Now, we're going to have to define in just a moment, what do we mean when we say reconciliation? What do we mean when we say justification? Sort of theologically loaded words, and I understand that. But I think if we want to break down Paul's argument, we can break it down like this. Verses 15 and 16, that's Paul's thesis statement. You see it there in the start of verse 16. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And because he knows we all have very thick skulls, he repeats it two more times in slightly different ways just to drive home that that's the point he's trying to make. And it really highlights that this is not just actually the thesis statement of this passage. That first bit of verse 16 is actually the thesis statement for the whole book. It's for the whole book. Everything in 1, 1 through 2, 14 was establishing Paul's credibility to make the claim that he does in 2, 16. And then chapters 3 and 4, those are all going to be scriptural support. Chapters 3 and 4 for the claim he makes in 2.16, that we're justified, not by works of the law, but by faith. And then chapters 5 and 6, all those chapters do is expound the implications, sort of ethically in our lives, that we're justified by faith and not by works of the law. So it's all right there, 16a, and if you're not averse to writing in your Bibles, you can just summarize the beginning of that verse, and you can write next to it, thesis statement of the book. If you're looking for one verse, that's it. We're right here at the center of Galatians, at the center of the gospel that Paul preaches. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. All right, but then verse 17, there's a question posed. Does this justification by faith, well, does that in any way encourage us to sin? To which Paul answers emphatically, no, certainly not. That's an issue he's going to return to later in chapter 5. And then verse 18 and 19, Paul's going to support that assertion. and say, listen, say, I died to the law, not so that I can sin. I didn't die to the law so I can sin and live as I please, but rather I died to the law in order that I might truly live for God. And then verse 20 is going to develop that idea further. He says, in fact, as I live, I live by faith in Christ, and not only that, Christ lives in me. And so the conclusion, therefore, he draws in verse 21 is that he does not reject the grace God offers in justification. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ's death was a waste. So that's his argument. That's the logical flow. And in the passage, what we find, we really find two ways to God. Two ways to God. Two ways that humanity approaches reconciliation with God. Because one thing that our lives will always reveal about us is that we're actually not okay. We're not okay, right? We make mistakes, we hurt other people, right? If it weren't so, right, we wouldn't need police officers, we wouldn't need court systems, we wouldn't need armies, we wouldn't need UN tribunals, but we need these things because none of us are okay. 
Now, some of us are prone to think, well, you know, God's really too nice to judge us. Or we're really too good to deserve any kind of sentence from God. But we only really say that because we fail to understand who God is and we fail to understand who we are rightly. I think that relationship between God and humanity is a little bit like those old-fashioned scales. You know the scales, you sort of put weight and it sort of it pulls one of these. And the higher the estimation of ourselves, the lower our estimation of God. It always works that way. Higher the estimation of ourselves, the lower our estimation of God. And yet the more holy and righteous and perfect and just we understand God to be, well, the more needy and desperate and destitute we understand ourselves to be. Societies, families, this world we live in, it's all broken because our relationship with our creator is broken. All the social ills we face out there reflect a deeper spiritual problem in here. We fall short. Right? We don't measure up. It's exactly what Chris was reading to us from earlier in the service in Romans chapter three, right? There are none that are righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside, right? We are alienated from God. Now, that's not to say that we're as bad as we could be, but it is to say that we are nowhere close to where we need to be. Somehow, that gap has to be bridged. We need reconciliation. And that's what this text is about. In many respects, this text is at the heart of the whole Bible storyline. Right? How can a sinful humanity be reconciled to a holy God? And Paul outlines two ways. And the first way says, well, we must work our way toward God. Right? We must come to him. The other way says that God must work his way toward us. He must come to us. One is called religion, the other is called Christianity. Two entirely paths built on two entirely different solutions from dealing with that problem of our alienation with God. And really, these paths are just gonna serve as the two outlines this morning. Uh, the outline, two points to, our, uh, to the message this morning. I'll just go ahead and give it to you first. The first way, the first path, is the path of religion. So point one, religion is about humanity reaching up toward God. So point one, the path of religion. Religion is about humanity reaching up toward God. Whereas the second way, as I said, the way of Christianity, Christianity, point two, is actually about God reaching down toward humanity. Christianity is actually about God reaching down toward humanity. Okay, so let's look at that first way, the way of religion. Religion is about humanity reaching up toward God, right? humanity reaching up toward God. And this is the way of the Judaizers. This is the, the issue that Paul's been addressing up until this point. Those who believe that the way forward in Christ is to actually go back to the law. Right? They want to turn back the clock of salvation history. They want to put God's whole plan of salvation in reverse as if somehow that's going to help these young Gentile Christians. They seek justification, Paul says, by what? By works of the law. Now that word justification, it's, maybe it's not a word you're familiar with. It's just a, a word that comes from the realm of, of law, from the courtroom. It's the judge rendering a verdict. 
right? The gavel drops, the sentence is read, and it's read justified. In other words, declared righteous. Justification, that's all it means, declaring one righteous. They've been acquitted, they've been vindicated. On what basis is that judgment rendered? Well, the first path, that judgment is rendered by works of the law. That's what he says three times in verse 16. He's going to repeat again, works of the law. Through the law in verse 21. And so it seems they're arguing so long as we obey the law at least reasonably well, right? we can work our way up toward God. And this is the way of religion, right? We get our way to God by working toward him. It's doing what he commands. It's abstaining from what God forbids. It's sort of ordinary, main street religion. I think the religion a lot of people associate even with Christianity. You buckle down, you get serious about your life, and you can get things done. And it's attractive to us, right? Because it gives us something to do. We get to bring something to the table. We get to stand before God and said, look, see, look at my contribution. In that sense, it flatters us. And it flatters us because it actually says salvation lies within us. We just need to apply ourselves. It's there in our grasp for the taking. And this, it intuitively seems to make sense because most of our lives are built off a merit system. Right? You work hard, you accomplish things, and you get a reward. We teach that with kids and classes. How many times, you know, I wanted to work hard on that little assignment because I get the gold star. Yeah, you want the gold star? You want the reward. But it's not just that, right? It's in, it's in work. It's in all that we do. We apply ourselves to accomplish things and be rewarded for it. We study hard. We pass the test. We get the A, right? The workplace, the weight room, wherever it is, we apply ourselves and we trust that as we put in the extra effort, it will be toward our benefit and our reward. And so, so often, what do we do? We place our worth and our abilities and our accomplishments and all of our achievements. And what we're doing is we're ever seeking to climb that ladder. We're ever seeking, rung by rung, to make our way up to God. And we do that with Him by the lives that we live by the things that we do, or at least by those things that we don't do, we ascend that ladder. We work our way up to him. The problem with that whole system is that Paul here is at pains to say, guys, it won't work. It just won't work. Three times, we can't be justified. You can't be declared right by works of the law. Paul's saying, are you serious? I mean, to these Judaizers saying, do you even not, do you not know your Old Testament? The last phrase in verse 16, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul's actually quoting there, Psalm 143, verse 2. He's calling this Old Testament text to mind because he wants to reveal to them, listen, you've, you've mistaken it. You've gotten it all wrong. The Bible's never taught that we ascend the ladder to God by virtue of our works, and Paul's not merely proof texting Psalm 143 out of context. That whole psalm is about how Israel is done in and they need a savior to deliver them. They need a divine work. They're so destitute, only God can help them. That's what Psalm 143 is about. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. But they're not grasping that. 
Paul said, do you not, just look at your Old Testament history. When has following the law ever worked out for your benefit? The Old Testament itself is one long proof text that you can't save yourselves. If you try to use the commands, good commands that reveal truths about God and how we're supposed to live, but if you use those things in order to build merit before God, you will fail every single time. That's what Israel would do. They'd start climbing up that ladder, and they'd get exhausted with command after command. They would become exhausted, and they'd fall into sin and slavery, and what would happen? God would have to save them. God would have to deliver them. The reoccurring story of the Old Testament. And Paul would even say, listen, even, do you not remember what Jesus said about the law? He says even one adulterous thought, just one adulterous thought, renders one an adulterer. That outburst of anger makes one a murderer. The standard is not, well, you know, hey, at least I'm better than the next guy. Or at least I didn't commit that sin. Jesus' standard, what does he say in Matthew 5, 48? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. And the remarkable thing is that these individuals, or you or I, could ever think we could get to God that way. How could we read the Bible and ever assume that's the way to God? I mean, we might as well try to swim across the ocean with a 50-pound belt around our waist. Yeah, okay, we'll feel pretty good about ourselves as we take the first steps in, but the second it gets to about six feet, three inches, I'm done, and I swim. Right, you're just, we can't make it. The law can't save. It was not given as a ladder. But that's what religion does. Religion turns God's good commands, and that was never his intent. Verse 19, Paul says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And what Paul means there, he's saying, listen, I died to the law as a means to be saved as a way of being saved, I gave up on the idea that the ladder was my way to God. I saw how high that ladder was. And I saw that with every rung I climbed, I noticed that those rungs tended to get farther and farther apart, impossibly far apart. I couldn't reach the next one. There was not a way to reach God through the law. And so I was driven to despair, and God helped me look elsewhere. I couldn't get to him on my own, and so he revealed someone would have to come down for me. Religion is how we devise our own ladders to reach our way toward God. But for those exhausted upon that ladder, climbing and falling and trying to climb again, Paul says, you know, actually there's another way. And it's not the way of religion, it's actually the way of Christianity. It's the way of Christianity, and it brings us to our second point. Christianity is actually about God reaching down toward humanity. It's God reaching down toward humanity. Christianity says, you know what you couldn't do? Well, that's exactly what Christ did for you. It's not about climbing the ladder. It's not about our ascent. It's about his descent. It's about Christ becoming man and fulfilling the obligations of the law that we could not fulfill. Now, evidently, these Jews felt there was some advantage in 
their ethnicity and their ability to climb that ladder before God. And so in verse 15, Paul recognizes that, yeah, you know, Peter, we were both Jews by birth. We were not sort of Gentile sinners. And when he says Gentile sinners, he's not suggesting that in some way the the Gentiles were more sinful than the Jews. He's merely recognizing in that phrase that there were some inherent blessings of being a part of God's old covenant people. Right, Ephesians 2.12, where the Gentiles were those were, they were strangers to the covenants of promise, right? Without hope, without God in the world. Yet for all these privileges, Paul's saying, listen, Peter and all of you attempting to use the law as a way to means, as a means to God, you know that that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. You can be born into a religious family, but that's not enough. All religion For most people, it's conceived of as hereditary. So you can speak of someone who's a Jew by birth. You can speak of someone who's a Muslim by birth. You can speak of someone who's many, nearly all religions by birth. But you actually can't speak of someone as a Christian by birth. Realize you can't do that. The Bible has no concept of Christian by birth. Nobody is born a Christian which is why Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3 that you must be born again. And Nicodemus was perplexed because, of course, it made sense to him. He was born into a Jewish family. He associated religion as something you're born into, much like ethnicity. But Christianity is just not what we inherit. It doesn't come from our parents. It doesn't come from the faith of our parents. It only comes as a response of our own personal profession to the work of Christ. And that's it. Which, as an aside, is why you should never give the sign of what it means to be a Christian, namely baptism. You should never give that sign to babies. You shouldn't do it because it perpetuates this whole idea. It confuses the whole idea that we can be born a Christian, uh, born a Christian right? I was christened. I was, I was baptized. That's just never how the Bible uses that word baptism in the New Testament. It's not, it's not hyperbole. I mean, I mean never. I mean not once, not ever, never. It just never uses it like that. Paul's saying, look, Peter, you and I both know being Jewish, being inheritors of the law, that wasn't enough to save us. Right? If Judaism was enough, Jesus never needed to come. But of course he did, which should, of course, speak to us that we need him. We're justified, not by ethnicity, not by works, he's saying, but by faith in Christ. And this, if you think about it, is an extraordinary claim for Paul to make. Justified by faith in Christ. Paul knows that in justification, God is declaring righteous those who aren't, in fact, righteous. And he knows this about himself because, of course, who is Paul? Paul was, Paul was a terrorist. He had Christian blood on his hands, much like whomever bombed those Coptic, that Coptic church in Cairo this morning, right? Blood on their hands. That was Paul. Paul was that man performing those kinds of things. How could God declare someone like Paul righteous? And for that matter, really, how could God declare any of us righteous? For the more we know about God, right, think of those scales, the more we know about him, the more we know about ourselves, right, we begin to see there's actually nothing about us that impresses God. 
nothing inherently in us that impresses him. There's no such thing as a good person from God's point of view. So if God's going to declare us righteous, and if that is going to be a, a true statement, not some legal fiction, but like a true statement, it would have to be on the merit of another, not on our own merit. And that's what Martin Luther called the alien righteousness that we need. I warned you, this would be a book where we'd hear a little bit of Luther, right? 500 years of the Reformation coming up, his first commentary, 1517. It's what he called an alien righteousness, not like aliens from outer space, but as in outside of us, right? We don't possess it. It must come from someone else, an alien righteousness. So justification, what is it? It's God's declaration that though we're sinners, we no longer stand condemned because Christ stood in our place. It's a basic definition. What is justification? God's declaration that though we are, yes, in fact, sinners, we no longer stand condemned because Christ stood in our place. And thus, we're acceptable to God, not on the basis of our own merit, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness. It's what he would go on to call the sweet exchange. The sweet exchange there on the cross, Jesus bearing sins, bearing the sins of all those who would ever repent of their sin and trust in him. He took the penalty of our sin there on the cross. He took that from us, and in exchange, we get his perfect righteousness. He gets our sin. We get his righteousness. That is what justification is all about. The penalty of our sin goes to him. The privileges of his life come to us. So if you've ever heard justification explained like this, just as if I never sinned, it's wrong. It's really half true, right? So don't don't say that. It's not just as if you never sinned. If it's just as if you never sinned, we're all back in the garden with Adam. That's all, and we're, perhaps we could sin again, and we'd have to start this whole process all over, right? It's not just as if I never sinned. No, yeah, our debts are erased. Our balances are brought to zero, but we need more than that. We need the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is why then Jesus gives us his line of credit. All his perfect works, his perfect life comes to our account. Debts erased, credit comes to us. We get that. Those two things come. It's what Christ gives to us. And by Christ ascending that ladder for us, living how we didn't live, he does it for us. The righteousness that God requires of us is that righteousness that he's then going to provide for us. He requires it of us, and then he will then provide it for us. 30 years of Jesus saying, no to sin and yes to God. The long road of obedience, that slow trail of suffering, that difficult path of sacrifice, all the obedience, all the perfection, this is what Christ has accomplished, and this is what he freely gives to us. Friends, no, in this sense, there is only one victorious Christian life. There's only one. There's only one who is truly sold out to God. There is only one who is totally surrendered, who has completely consecrated his life toward God, and it wasn't you. It wasn't me. It was Christ and Christ alone, the only one who has lived as God has called humanity to live. And because he loved you, 
because he has. And he gave himself for you. That means everything that he has won can be ours by faith. Friend, I hope you see that's where Christianity departs from all other religions. We're not justified by what we do. We're not climbing that ladder. It's what he has done for us. And how does that come to us? Paul says it's by faith alone. It's not by works. And it's by faith alone. Christianity is distinct in this. Distinct from all other religions. Distinct again from Roman Catholicism. And it's important just to be clear on this point. I'm very thankful for the common ground that Protestants like we, University Baptist Church, would have with Roman Catholicism, the way in which we can march and agree on issues of social justice or on issues of the sanctity of human life. But please understand, we're not together on this most basic issue of how one is reconciled to God. Because Roman Catholicism teaches that God's grace is actually infused in us like medicine as we cooperate with God and participate in the sacraments of the church. And that sense, grace is a joint effort. It's a joint effort. Doing one's best, climbing that ladder, that in fact is a prerequisite to receiving the grace of God. But of course, most people don't cooperate enough, which is why they go to purgatory and they have to work off those remaining sins. But there are a few special saints who have actually cooperated sufficiently and even cooperated more than they needed to. And they built up a storehouse of merit and it's kept in the church and the Pope has the authority to dispense that merit as he will. Particularly when the church is strapped for cash, as it was in Luther's day. And they can sell that merit. That's what Roman Catholicism teaches. Not only do we have to work our way toward heaven, but we can buy our way toward heaven. And I don't mean to be disparaging, but you need to know what it teaches. And it's never denied that teaching. The current pope affirms that teaching. They still sell indulgences. So you can buy your way, get years off your time in purgatory. And this is what made Martin Luther so upset. He's like Paul. He nails those 95 theses of the Castle of Wittenberg. He says, hey, guys, have you read Galatians? Have you read Romans? This is not what the Bible teaches. We don't cooperate with God's grace. We can't buy it. It comes to us freely as a gift, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet that gospel, Catholicism treats as anathema. They condemn the very gospel we understand is the only gospel that saves Justification is not a process. It's a one-time declaration that God gives. Justification is not infused in us. It is imputed to us on the basis of Christ. We don't cooperate with God in order to earn his mercy. God freely gives us his mercy in Christ. Entirely different paths to God. Entirely different ways of being reconciled. I'm not saying there are no two Christians within Roman Catholicism. But I am saying if they're there, they're in spite. They're there in spite of the teachings of the church, not because of those teachings. And we're not helped if we misunderstand that. Okay, we're justified by faith alone. Maybe that was my Paul Martin moment. I don't know. Justified by faith alone. All right, but what kind of faith justifies? What kind of faith is Paul talking about, the faith that justifies? Well, it comprises three things. One, it comprises knowledge. Faith understands basic facts about who Jesus is and about his death and his resurrection. But it's not just knowledge. 
It's more than that. It's also assent. It's actually being convinced that those facts are true. But even with knowledge and even with assent, that doesn't make one a Christian, right? The demons understood who Jesus was, and they believed who he was. That didn't make them believers and Christians. No, it also thirdly comprises trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Faith, and in faith we entrust ourselves wholly over to these facts. We commit the entirety of our lives to these facts. Knowledge, assent, and trust. We are justified on the basis of that kind of faith. That's the kind of faith that's saving faith. But notice Paul says, he says we're justified by faith, not on account of faith. And friends, there's a lot of theology in that grammar. And honestly, I don't like grammar. I didn't enjoy sentence diagramming as a kid. I don't like studying the cases But this grammar is actually grammar to get excited about. It's grammar that should fuel our hearts in worship. Because Paul's saying it's not the strength of our faith that saves, but it's the object of our faith that saves. Two entirely different things. Not the strength of our faith that saves us, the object of our faith that saves us. We're declared righteous because of what Christ has done. Not simply because we accepted what Christ has done. The message of Christianity, therefore, it's not more faith. More faith. Your faith's a bit weak today. You know, Brad, you better pick it up. Work harder. Be more joyful. Have more faith. No, that's not what we preach as Christians. As Christians, we preach trust in Christ. Christ alone. He alone can save. Our faith, it will grow weak. But we don't despair because Christ doesn't grow weak. Our faith, it will wane, but we don't despair because Christ's affection won't wane for his people. What did we sing earlier? Right, Christ's assurance, steady anchor. What did we sing? In the suffering, in the star, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few. What does that song say? In the suffering, in the sorrow, when your sinking hopes are few, yeah, try harder. Try harder. Dig deeper into that well of human resolve. That's not what the song says. No, when our sinking hopes are few, through the floods of unbelief, I will hold fast to the anchor. It will never be removed. Friend, maybe this morning, part of what this text is teaching you is you need to stop navel-gazing at your own faith. Just stop it. Text is saying, look to Christ. Your faith doesn't save you. Christ saved you. He saved you. Your faith will go up and down. His will not. Look to him. Look to Christ. He saves. But even as we do that, the kind of faith he's calling us to here, it's, it's not the faith of a one-time decision. Right? Paul says he's been crucified with Christ in verse 20. That doesn't mean he was literally there with Christ. And Paul's not suggesting that his death completed what where Christ was sort of incomplete, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, he knows Jesus suffered uniquely, vicariously, unrepeatedly. Jesus' death was a God-forsaken death for a God-forsaken people. Paul knows that. Crucified with Christ is simply another way of saying, listen, I died to the law. I died to it, verse 19, so that I might live to God. And the life, he says, verse 20, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. He says the life he lives now, 
whatever, 14 or so years after his conversion, the life he lives now, he lives by faith in the Son of God. It's not just something we do when we're eight. It's, faith is not that thing we did when we prayed a prayer or walked an aisle. Faith is that daily expression of our trust in God that he is worthy and he will see us through. We don't grasp after second blessings or after emotional highs. We go on as Christians the same way we started as Christians by faith in Christ. And the result of that saving faith, Paul says, is it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And we can so quickly just run right over that verse. But you realize what Paul's saying. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I mean, what did the Old Testament long for? What did Moses long for? The day when Christ would not merely dwell among his people, but in his people. And Paul's saying, this is what Christ has won. This is what he has won. God justifies us by faith in Christ, and then he leaves us his Holy Spirit, that deposit guaranteeing our own inheritance. And notice how he describes the Holy Spirit. It's the Christ in me, he says. The Christ in me, it's the Spirit of Christ, which means if the Holy Spirit that resides in you as a believer is the spirit of Christ, it will never lead you to do something that Christ expressly forbids. If the Holy Spirit that resides in you is the spirit of Christ, it will never lead you to do something that Christ expressly forbids. And I say that because too many times have I heard believers say, you know what, I felt led by the spirit to do this thing. I felt led by the spirit that I really needed to to leave my spouse or do some other sinful action, or some obviously foolish action. And they use the Spirit to justify their sinful, evidently foolish ways. But friends, we just can't confuse, we can't confuse fleshly desires with the Spirit's direction. We wanna do that, we can't confuse those two things. Fleshly desires with the Spirit's direction. The Spirit of Christ will lead you according to the words of Christ. He doesn't lead us any other way. So friends, in these verses, we just we have the heart of the Christian faith. Indeed, the heart of Galatians, the heart of the whole Bible. And we see that humanity's greatest need, it is reconciliation. It's to be made right with God, and that's provided for us in justification. And yet, what do we do? We approach God, and we still seek to approach him really by one of two ways. Right? We erect a ladder of our good works and seek to ascend to make our way to God. But by those works, by those deeds, notice what Paul says, verse 21. That way, he says, is to nullify the grace of God. Right, because if we can erect ladders of our own good works and make our way up to God, then Christ's death, what was it? It was a tragic waste. You can add Christ to that long history of delusional messiahs. Christ becomes nothing but just a trivial footnote in the history of antiquity. That's all it becomes, if there is another way. You see, Christ will either do everything for you, or he will do nothing for you. 
He'll either do everything for you or he'll do nothing for you. There is no middle way. This, this whole text is a study in contrasts, right? Jew versus Gentile, faith versus works, dead to the law versus alive to God, all in order to impress upon us the nature of that choice that confronts us. Which is why if we seek to rebuild structures of law keeping that Christ tore down, if we seek to climb up that ladder by whatever means we devise, we make a mockery of God, a mockery of his death, a mockery of that death like the soldiers who spat on him, like the thieves who hurled insults at him, like the rabble who would ridicule him. That's what we become. Our greatest need is reconciliation, and God met it in justification. Christ did everything for us. That's the only way. That's the only way. The message of Christianity, Christ must do it all. And I recognize, even as I say that, one way, the Bible's teaching can be hard. But never dismiss any truth merely because you don't find it appealing. That's never a good way to live life. Don't dismiss truths dismiss truth merely because you find them unappealing. The reality is there are lots of truths in our life that we don't like. You may not like the grade in a class as you head into the end of this semester. You perhaps may not like the balance on your bank statement. You may look at that license and think, is that really how old I am? Is that my date of birth? I don't really like that. I don't know what you don't like, but the reality is those are facts, and you can't escape those facts. The factuality of something is never determined by our fondness of it. It just never is. This gospel, it came from God. It came from him. Paul didn't like it when he first received it. Well, when he heard it, he didn't like it. He continued to persecute it. I didn't like it. I was adamantly opposed to it when I first heard it. But that doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's not true. Religion teaches us to elect erect our ladders of good works to get to heaven. Christianity teaches us, hey, you know what? Christ is that ladder. That vision of the Old Testament, that ladder, Jesus says, yeah, you know what? That's the spirit descending coming down. I am that ladder. I am the way. I've come down to you. I am the way up to God. Only through me. Only through me. Religion teaches us. God demands your best. Christianity teaches us, well, you know what? God gives us his best. So friends, just put that in mind. Do you really believe this morning that your best, that your path, that your best is better than God's? Accept his way. Let's pray. Oh God, these verses hit us in different ways. We praise you for the truth of them. I didn't always praise you for the truth of these verses. Not all of us will, but they are true. And you have speaking truthfully and you only speak truthfully. You don't lie to us. We thank you for that. And we thank you that what we could not accomplish, you have accomplished for us. You don't just demand our best you give us yours. God, that is a glorious truth. No one loves like that. God, we pray that even as we reflect this Christmas season on why you became man, that verses like this would mean even more. In Jesus' name, amen.